Filmmakers. Hello and welcome back to Film Dependence, the micro-budget filmmaking podcast for micro-budget filmmakers. How's everyone's week been? Sorry I missed last week. It's been a little bit hectic. Time is no longer my friend, it would appear. That will hopefully explain why I've been quite quiet on the Twitters lately and it will also explain why this is going to be a little bit of a looser upload schedule from now on. I'm going to probably have to dial this back to once a night rather than once a week. This does mean that they will probably mess that word up then probably, probably, probably be more hour long episodes because I'm not going to make you wait a fortnight you're the second half of an interview that's just not fair on you and all the people who were interviewed but yeah so this is going to be the last two part for a while and this is also going to be a very very short preamble because as I said time is not my friend lately anyway that having been said we'll go back to the trilogy trilogy with Ben and here comes a very clumsy edit. Right, I am going to now go into a section that we... Well, the second half of these interviews. Um, the Trilogy Trilogy. I think I told you about this coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so it's three questions about three things. Um, so first one, are your top three influences? Um, from a... I've kind of... I'm, just talking from a filmmaking perspective. Yeah. Um, so I would say probably three three directors, and John Carpenter, um, who is pretty much my favourite director. Uh, and I think if you go back to the themes of, of Micro Budget, if you look at his first couple of films, uh, Dark Star and The Salt and Precinct 13, Dark Star was something that was kind of high concept, that was developed kind of off the back of making a short um, um, but Assault and Precinct 13 really is for me because real minimal budget on Assault and Precinct 13 I can't remember what it was I think at the time it was certainly under $150,000 if I remember rightly Um, but again you know what I mean about a single location minimal actors Mm. um, and he just made that work for him and I think for me, John Carpenter is one of the main reasons I love filmmaking. Um, off the back of that, uh, the another director who I've always just been fascinated with his films and think he's massively, massively been ahead of his time uh, throughout his career is David Cronenberg. Um, go back to kind of like his initial films like Shivers and Rabid um, again Cronenberg is somebody who's, who has been the kind of mainstay in the temple of Canadian filmmaking certainly in the, in the 70s uh, and throughout really you know he is he's the, the kind of god of filmmaking over there um, and just what he produced 
was just felt ridiculously ahead of the time and not so much in, in things like the effects or the, the, the storage but the themes that he was exploring um, were just just felt so out there if you imagine Shivers and, and there's just kind of an interpretation of it but Shivers almost felt like a precursor to the AIDS epidemic that kind of came years later down the line um, Dead Ringers was another thing about Kind of mirroring what's happening, perhaps not so much as, as much now, but in the last ten years with plastic surgery and and, and all these types of things, and it was just um, such a fascinating filmmaker, and just really, really, if if there's another parallel that I draw with David Cronenberg, it's almost like um, the Clive Barker of filmmaking. If you've ever read anything about Clive Barker. His, no. um, his 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 idea of imagery and and just you can't comprehend where he gets the ideas from. Um, and I guess the third one is really the probably the director who really established me um, being interested in film, almost like studying film, and that's Sam Peckinpah. Um, and I think it was I saw probably the Wild Bunch when I was about sixteen. Um, and it's still for me the, the greatest western ever made and again he was another one who everything he did what was high concept um, to a large degree and the way that he used to dress sets in particular it was so meticulous in how he used to do it if you imagine in um, let's say the Wild Bunch for example I'm sure I've heard this story talked about but there's a bit where perhaps a carriage goes down a road so he'll start off and he'll get the carriage going down the road and then he'll reverse it and he'll get the carriage to go back up and then he'll add something to the set and they get the carriage to come down again and then he'll get the carriage to go back up and he'll add something else again and he used to go through this process of thinking so much about how can I create the most out of what I've got um, and again if you see the editing work that goes into his films as well that really was, you know, how can I get the most out of what what I've got? And the editing style that he produced, there's nothing like it, and it's still imitated today. I guarantee you, you know, every kind of action film going, where you see the ridiculous um, shot, slow motion shot, where perhaps somebody's on the, a motorbike and they go on the side and they slide and the car jump goes over the top of them and yeah. it's all done in slow motion. You know, that would not exist if it wasn't for Sam Peckinpah um, because he took the idea of movie violence and, and how to frame action um, and he made it what it was. So those are my three biggest influences for you. I like that. I need to watch a bit more Peckinpah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, second question. Three films you think every filmmaker, every micro-budget filmmaker rather, needs to watch? Um, I think I'm, I'm, I, th- I think the first one is, is, is a good one, um, and it's probably one that every micro-budget filmmaker has seen, and that's Reservoir Dogs. Um, and again, it goes back to the idea of, I've got a single location, um, I appreciate there are other locations in there, but predominantly single yeah, location. Got a small collection of actors, um, and it's again about how can I use this location 
to my advantage yeah. um, and that's I, I think for me that that should be a blueprint of okay I'm going to make a feature film what can I look at to inspire me and that should be the thing of like okay right so if I can just get a warehouse and perhaps about six six people to act in it then I can make my feature um, yeah. so I certainly think that's one um the um sorry before you go on to the next one the thing that i always think that's overlooked with reservoir dogs that again micro budget filmmakers should learn from but no one ever seems to bring up is how segmented the film is <clears throat> so you've got you know the, the bit in the warehouse and then it'll go to flashbacks and then them flashbacks have got only two or three of the cast and it's a completely different setup it's a completely different time periods so or continuity doesn't need to matter he's basically made three short films and stitched them together yeah yeah absolutely and uh, th- th- that's something he's carried through you know, a lot of his films and again mm-hmm. no, that's, it's continuity will kill your film if you don't get it right so it's a very good point that you make that about okay what we can do is we can fill out our story we can give our characters backstory we don't have to worry about continuity and and necessarily stitching it all together in that respect Um, and it's something that we can break down and film on a schedule that's fairly straightforward so that that whole film is is a great blueprint for making a a micro-budget film yeah, very much so. So uh, number two, um, I'm, I'm kind of gonna gonna swerve a bit on this one and and not necessarily talk about a film, but a filmmaker, uh, and that's John Cassavetes. Um, the the reason I kind of wanted, wanted to hone in on him is um, because again, John Cassavetes really did kind of. He was like the darling of indie cinema for for so long, um, and the way he used to work was obviously going off because he was a massive Hollywood star, uh, and he'd go off and he'd do something like Rosemary's Baby, and then he'd go and you know make something um, on his own with like you know, a handful of people uh, in somebody's kitchen, and and that's the way that that he always worked. Um, and I think again for, for for an indie filmmaker, I think going back and looking at, at Cassavetti's work, his, his indie film work, is really something that that, that probably um, again another good blueprint. Um, I'm just trying to think of let's go with the killing of a Chinese bucky. I think that's uh, that's probably a good one, but I think these are the good ones to watch as well. Uh, from him yeah I like that and um, number three um, a bit of a I don't know if it's one that necessarily people have heard of no it doesn't matter but there's a uh, years ago there was a, a movement called Mumblecore which was um, kind of like an American indie uh, set up where there was a load of there's a wave of filmmakers who came and they all kind of did very not similar films but they were all in a similar vein um they were all kind of relationship based and and it was all about people talking and interacting very little kind of 
strong narrative going on, but really it was just more about the interaction between people. And one of the films that kicked off that was Funny Ha Ha, um, which was kind of, it's a funny one to describe because it's basically a film about nothing. It's just a film about um, <laughs> people, uh, this girl kind of going about and interacting and, and kind of trying to piece together um, her life and, um, and how she, she um, relates to other people. Um, and the thing with Mumblecore was, was about how much of it was, was improvised. Um, and, and the vast, vast majority was. It's almost this idea of taking a camera, setting up with a couple of actors and getting them to, to just kind of improvise the scene. Um, oh. And it's a really, really fascinating thing to watch. And I've had a couple of films come through. There was one that we screened last year called Like, um, which was very largely improvised in the year before. Um, this film called Luke and Joe, which again was largely improvised. Um, and when it works, it feels natural and it, um, it's really interesting. And I think traditional filmmakers, uh, oh, sorry, traditional film audiences, it may be something that, that, that perhaps might struggle to, to initially engage with. But really, if you're just wanting to see about, okay, what can I do with real limited resources? If you go back to a film like Funny Ha Ha, and it's just right, take a couple of people, get a camera, sit them in a room, get them, almost like give them something to talk about and film it and see what happens. And I think that, that that's a really interesting and, and quite a good approach. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I like that. I'll have a look at that, uh, that one. Right, so question three. Three things that no micro-budget filmmaker should be without. Um, I think one of the key ones is is probably easier said than done but a good crew uh i think if you i've seen a lot where people have tried to do a lot of things uh, on their films uh, or themselves and it's sometimes it works like the um chris who did uh, american sci-fi he actually god knows how he did it but he managed to pull it all off um but I think if you've got a good DOP that you can rely on, if you've got a good sound guy that you can rely on, then that will make all the difference uh, to your film because that is a stress that you do not want. You don't need to. You don't want to have to worry about okay, how's this shot being framed? Have I got the booming shot? You know all that side of things. So I think absolutely a good crew would be the first one for me. Nice answer. Um, Especially is overlooked with micro-budget filmmakers because a lot of us try to do everything ourselves, and it's not often it's out of necessity, but it's not 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 always a good idea. No, no, and and sometimes people are just afraid to go and ask people, you know, to say, yeah, yeah. Come on, "Can you come and help me?" And nothing wrong with just asking people, or even I've seen it a million times. People just put. Uh, a post out on social media and loads of people will respond and you know say oh yeah i'm interested in doing that so yeah yeah no i think uh, there are people out there who want to who really do want to help um it harkens so back as well then to what you so was going to say that harkens it harkens back then as well to what we were saying way way back about uh no 
sorry about uh, the getting different sorts of experience as much as you can get on different sets and and building up that network yeah yeah absolutely i i always say you know if, if i went back and had my time kind of post university i'd probably go off and and get my experience and just go on and be in as many film sets as i could before i mm-hmm. kind of jumped in and did my own own thing so yeah absolutely but- I've said before, it's not not a lot of times that I've been on stage 32 or LinkedIn and seen a job posting saying filmmaker wanted, showreel not required, must be fully qualified. Yeah. Yeah, is that like? Yeah. yeah. Right, so, uh, number two. Right, so, what I would say um, for this is have a kind of have a strategy I think that's a key thing it's great to go out and make your film and have that sense of accomplishment that you've made it but if you haven't got thought about okay what's the the, the longer term goal with this um, then you know your film's almost not going to not going to do anything because what you need to be doing even before you're making the film, whilst you're making the film, after you're making the film, you need to get people to start being invested in that film. So have a strategy in marketing it, in speaking to people to get them interested in it. But then, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to send it to festivals? Am I going to try and get it to a sales agent? Um, how am I going to make any money back on this? Because that's another interesting thing I've seen. Yeah, I've seen a couple of films who who um, they've gone off and they've got a sales agent, and some of the films that we've had submitted to us are now sat on the shelves in HMV, um, and they've obviously they've done well that way. I've seen other people who have just gone down a self distribution route and produced their own Blu-rays and gone off and sold them and tried to get money back that way, but. Hmm that's part of the strategy process and it might be the case that okay I'm going to go for a sales agent but if that fails I'm going to self-distribute so think about how is it that you're going to get your film out there what's your plan what's what's the end goal if you like know where you go and work towards that yeah 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 absolutely um I I, I talked to um uh we showed a documentary last year called VHS Massacre 2 when the, the filmmaker and that Tom talked a lot about where your film's home is. Um, and it might be that when you've made it, you don't even know where that home is. Um, and that's the other thing with, with festivals in particular. You, you, you made a film, say, for example, you made a documentary, like Tom's, Tom's documentary was in particular focused on the kind of love of VHS and, and that side of things. And he almost, he wasn't sure where, where, where that would sit. Would it sit in a documentary festival? Would it almost sit in a horror festival? Um, and in reality, it probably straddles both of them. But yeah. have an idea about where its home is going to be. Um, and again, going back to what we were saying earlier about reach out to some festivals and speak to them. And they will tell you, you know, I was like thinking a lot of them will... will quite happily speak to you about it yeah it's sort of going back to kevin smith we were talking about earlier as well um a lot of his well the vast majority of his films have all more basically been box office disasters but 
they sell really, really well on, at the time, VHS. So even if your original plan doesn't necessarily work the way you want it to, you can always sort of pivot, well, like me and you were saying back at the start of the interview, just pivot slightly and you, you might find another path to, path to your end game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all part of being, being um, a filmmaker is how can you adapt to, to the challenges that you have? Because I guarantee you, you'll have a plan and that plan will change within you know a day of you having that plan. So yeah, it is. You're absolutely right about pivoting uh, to other areas. So my, I guess the third thing, and I know it's when you're saying about things that a, a micro-budget filmmaker has, might not seem like a physical thing that, that I'm going to talk about, but again, it's going back to something I said earlier, and that's your idea needs to fit your resources. So yeah. if, if, if you can get access to a cool location, and, and again, I've seen a lot of films when I've talked to the filmmakers where they've gone, they found a location, and I think, um, if I remember rightly, when we showed Bruiser last year, they found like some, I can't remember what, what the location was, it might have been a car scrapyard or something like that, and they could get access to it. So that wasn't part of the script, but what they did was they, write, they wrote it into the story. Um, mm. So think about the resources that you can get, and, okay, how can I write my story into those resources? So... If I can get a warehouse, okay, so I'm going to write a thriller or a horror film that's set in a warehouse. I sure. can get, you know, three actors, so I'm going to write a three-hander. You know, I'm not going to write uh, an ensemble cast piece. I, I see it time and time again again where people will start off with an idea and even go for crowdfunding um, where the idea is just far, far too high concept for for what it is that they want to do. So I think yeah. work to your resources, um, absolutely, and then let things fall into place. You can make a good film out of anywhere and anything you can, as long as you you know, you know, put the effort in, you, you put your thought into it, you can make anything happen. And again, yeah, back to like Ben Wheatley's first film, Down Terrace, you know, it's a film set in the house. It's simple. True. Doing simple well. <clears throat> right. That, I think, is a good note to end the podcast on this week. So, um, yeah, I'll thank you for coming on. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And I've enjoyed that. Enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you very much. And uh, on behalf of the listeners, I'm going to thank you for your prize donation to this uh, prompt competition we've been running the last few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that, that's something I'm really looking forward to see, seeing what happens with that. Um, yeah, and, and again, if anyone does have any films or anything they want to show, you know, come and speak to us and we'll always kind of see what we can do. Yeah, there will be a web link in the show notes for you. Brilliant. Thank Brilliant. you very much. No problem. 